0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come, Follow Me.
1: We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, Talkingscripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be talking about Acts chapter 16 through 21. This section of the book of Acts is going to cover Paul's second and his third missionary journey. It will end in Acts chapter 21, where he will be arrested at the Jerusalem temple. And so there's some really good sermons in here. And probably the main thing that I would highlight in this week's Come Follow Me is Paul's sermon at Mars Hill that's happening in Athens in the 17th chapter of Acts. That's probably the highlight of this week's Come Follow Me. There's a lot of movement going to places. We have some maps in the show notes that will be helpful to you if you're interested. Lots of movement in this section of Come Follow Me. Now, speaking of that movement, we
0: open up in Acts chapter 16 with, for me, one of the great applicable lessons of my life. It is a hard lesson that I've had to learn, and so many people that I love have had to learn, and it's beautifully taught in Acts chapter 16. Starting in verse 1, Paul came to Derby and Lystra, he's kind of starting at the same place where he's been in the past. And then verse 7 says, they essayed to go into Bithynia. So Paul wanted to go to Bithynia, but the Lord said, Paul, I'm going to send you to Philippi. And so he has this dream, verse 9, a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him saying, come over into Macedonia and help us. And eventually, look at verse 12, he eventually makes his way to Philippi which was the chief city of that part of Macedonia. And those two cities are so symbolic of in my life, and I'm guessing in yours as well. Bithynia represents sometimes the places we thought we would go, where we wanted to go. I thought my life was going to go in this direction. I had plans of doing this. And the Lord has a tendency in the middle of those plans say, whoa, whoa, wait, come to Philippi. Now here's the rest of the story. If you read Paul's epistles, you will know that one epistle stands apart as different. Paul loved all of the people where he served. He wrote letters out of love and concern, but there was such a bond between Paul and the Philippians. That letter to the Philippians is unlike the rest. Quite often, Paul's letters kind of take on a, a rebuke, um, scolding, um, you need to change these. It's an apostle who loves them trying to correct their behavior. But with the Philippians, it seems to just be this expression of love. And, oh, I loved being with you, and I'm so grateful. You just saw Paul on that beach saying goodbye to the Philippians and weeping. And there's my point. Paul wanted to go to Bithynia. How many times in your life did you had your heart set on going to Bithynia, and then all of a sudden the Lord came in and said, no, I need you in Philippi. And then in the end, when you look back, you realize, oh my goodness, he was so right. Philippi was where I needed to be. It was so much better than what I would have done had I gone to Bithynia. Paul loved Philippi and they loved him. To all of you who were on your way to Bithynia, and the Lord says, let me alter your course. Let me change you. You are like the tree in Zenus's allegory of the tame and the wild olive tree. Do you remember what the Lord does to the tree that's starting to put forth bad fruit? He grafts it, he plucks it, And then he takes one branch and he places it where they never thought they would go. So many times in my life and in the lives of people I love, we've been placed. I was loving Bithynia. I was on my way to Bithynia. Everything was going so well. And the Lord yanked me out of that place and he he placed me over here. The servant kind of questions the Lord, saying, Why did you, why here of all places? Why here? Why did you do that to him? And that's that beautiful moment in Jacob chapter five where the Lord says, Counsel me not. I knew. To all of you who were yanked out of your Bithynias, it is my witness. And I think this story is trying to teach someday you will look back and say, He knew what he was doing. Someday you will, like Paul, look back and say, I am so grateful that the Lord sent me to Philippi. It was the very best thing that could have happened to me.
1: Paul is also in this time period. He is with a certain disciple named Timothy. And we read in 1 Timothy 1, verse 2, that Timothy is a true child in the faith or even a beloved child in 2 Timothy 1, verse 2. Timothy's kind of a big deal. He's called a beloved and faithful child in the Lord in 1 Corinthians 4. And Timothy is with Paul in a lot of his missions. Paul had many companions, but nobody was really closer to him than Timothy. And so Timothy goes with him on these journeys and experiences. And Acts chapter 16, verse 3, we read that Paul circumcises Timothy because of the Jews which were in those quarters. And so, Timothy's mother is a Jew, but everybody knows that his father is a Greek. And so, Paul's going out of his way to accommodate the people that he's with.
0: So, The proper channel is we don't circumcise, but in this circumstance, given where we're at, I think it's lest we offend, let's go ahead and circumcise. Kind of like the spirit of Matthew chapter 17, doth your Lord pay tribute? And Jesus says, do I really need to pay tribute, Peter? To whom do the kings charge taxes? To strangers or their children? Okay, I guess you're right. You don't have to pay the tax. And then Jesus says lest we offend. Yeah, There is that moment where you do have to balance and say, in this circumstance, I have every right, but in this circumstance, given where we're at, I think it's lest we
1: offend, let's go ahead and circumcise. And also, I just want to note this. Look in verse 10 of Acts chapter 16. It says, after he had seen the vision about the guy saying, hey, come over into Macedonia and help us, that vision that Paul has. In verse 10, we read, we endeavor to go into Macedonia. That's the first time that we have we popping up in the book of Acts. So this is Luke writing this. So Luke isn't telling you, hey, I'm with him, but he is. Because he says, we endeavor to go into Macedonia. So here we have Paul, we have Luke, we have Timothy, and they're going into uh, Macedonia, which is across the Aegean. It's, you know, they're leaving Turkey, and they're going into uh, Macedonia there, and they're going into Philippi. And then in their journeys, they meet this woman named Lydia in verse 14, and she is a seller of purple, and she and her entire household are baptized. And many people say that this is the first European convert into the church of Jesus Christ. She's also a businesswoman and the first believer to open her home as a worship center for European Christians. Uh, By the way, as she is a seller of purple, this purple would be highly valued. Some people estimate that it took about 10,000 shellfish to produce just a little bit of this costly dye that made purple and so because it was so rare it was a symbol of wealth and power and so if you wore purple in this time period everybody knew that you had money i'm trying to think of what a modern equivalent would be today maybe it would be uh, if you were in your private jet everybody knows that you have lots of money and so because of this She was probably highly connected. And in the midst of this teaching this woman, in chapter 16, verse 16, we read, after Lydia and her household are baptized, we read about a certain damsel that was possessed with a spirit of divination. And she testifies that Paul and Luke and Timothy are servants of the Most High God. And Paul's response is that he's grieved. And he commands these, these spirits that are with her to come out of her. And I really think this it's a good time to just pause here and ask, okay, why is this? And what are some principles that we can pull out of this? And I think one of them is section 42 of the Doctrine and Covenants. I think it's worth just taking a time out and looking at section 42 and seeing what the Lord says there. Now, when you get there, please notice the heading. Joseph Smith
0: designates section 42 as the law of the church, and the Lord talks about good spirits and not-so-good spirits and how we know the difference between them.
1: Yeah. So in section 42, we read this in verse 14. The Spirit shall be given unto you by the prayer of faith, and if you receive not the Spirit, ye shall not teach. Now this woman, this damsel, She is, in my view, teaching, but I don't think she's teaching the way the Lord would have us teach. And so I think where the Lord says, if you receive not the Spirit, you shall not teach, I think what he's saying here is, there's a certain way I want you to teach. But she's testifying that Paul and Luke and Timothy are servants of God. It's not just the words you use. You can use the right words in the wrong
0: way, and it's not divine. It doesn't have the stamp of heaven. You
1: have to not only teach the right words, but you have to teach it in the right way. Exactly. Maybe, Bryce, maybe we should read section 50 briefly here. Let's go there. Go to section 50 of the Doctrine and Covenants. And the Lord says in verse 10, let us reason together that you may understand. And then he talks about teaching. And he says, I, the Lord, this is in verse 13, ask you this question, Unto what were you ordained? to preach my gospel by the Spirit, even the Comforter which was sent to teach the truth, and then received ye spirits which ye could not understand, and received them to be of God, and in this year justified? Behold, ye shall answer this question yourselves. I say unto you, He that is ordained of me and sent forth to preach the word of truth by the Comforter in the Spirit of truth, does he preach it by the Spirit of truth or some other way? If it's by some other way, it is not of God. Elder Oaks said powerfully that same idea. He said, even though what is being
0: taught is the truth, it is not of God unless it is being taught in the Lord's way. The great truths of the gospel must not be presented in the wrong setting, given voice by unworthy persons, accompanied by the wrong kind of music— or in other ways cheapened by the association with what is not conducive to the spirit by which gospel truths must be taught. And I think this is a warning voice to all of us. Sometimes we want our students or we want our audience to be emotional, and so we tell a story that will make them emotional, or we play music, or we take them to a place, or we do something that will catch their attention— so that they all listen and they put their phones down. And I get it. I get that we want their attention and we want them to weep, but I'm going to say it again. Even though what is being taught is the truth, it is not of God unless it is being taught in the Lord's way. That's what this damsel is trying to teach us, is she's saying the words that are appropriate, that Paul is a minister of God. But the way she's saying it, the mood, the environment, the spirit with which she's speaking is not of God. It is not the Lord's way. Therefore, Paul rebukes her and says, "Uh -uh, that is not how we teach in the gospel.
1: We see similar things throughout the gospel narratives, especially in Mark, where the demons see who Jesus is and they testify of him. And Jesus always rebukes the demons when they testify of him. And he says to be silent. And I think if the Lord or his servants agrees with these false messengers, then some people could be confused thinking that the false messenger is the message. And so we've got to kind of draw this line of distinction here. And so with this back to Acts chapter 16, Paul is grieved and he commands the spirit to leave her. And then it says in verse 19 that her masters see this. And so they rile up the authorities and make sure that Paul and his companions are taken and put into prison, and beaten. And it says that stripes are laid upon them. They're put in the stocks. We read that a couple of the people there are Paul and Silas. There's an earthquake that happens and they're eventually released from prison. And the jailer or the keeper of the prison is suicidal in verse 27, because he realizes if these guys are getting free, I'm gonna be in big trouble. And so Paul says, hey, don't harm yourself. And the man says, well, what do I gotta do to be saved? And Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's verse 31. And that word for belief, the root of that word in the Greek is pistis, which is the most common word that's used and translated as faith. And that word is rooted in reciprocal trust. In the Greek culture, that word pistis is reciprocal trust. In other words, it's not just believe, like I believe that my favorite sports team will have a winning season. It's this deep and abiding reciprocal trust. That's what he is teaching him to do. And so they're set free. We read that their stripes are washed, and these men are able to go. Mike, speaking of that
0: story with that jailer, one of the things I love about this story, do you remember when Jesus was on the cross and the point we made was he was so concerned about other people, not himself? One of the lessons we learned from Christ in that final hour is when he was in agony, he was more concerned about his mother and a thief on the cross than his own agony. One of the signs of God-like people is that they put others, that they focus on others. And I love this little story because when there's an earthquake and the doors open, the jailer knows, oh my goodness, I'm gonna be held responsible for the release of these prisoners. They're gonna execute me. And so he's gonna take his own life. And Paul says, do thyself no harm. We are all here. Paul could have left the prison and freed himself, totally, but it would have brought a lot of responsibility and problems on that jailer, and he knew it. And so to spare the jailer those consequences, Paul says, hey, we're here. We haven't left. We're all right here. Do thyself no harm. That is that love that mike was talking about the love that says look i have a moment here to do something for myself that might be in my best interest but i am going to focus on you because i know what would be in your best interest i think the ultimate attribute of a celestial person heavenly father
1: is more concerned about our happiness I like that, Bryce. I like that you're drawing out that, hey, they don't, they actually don't leave. Now, I think there's a lot more going on here that we just don't have because we read in verse 35 that the magistrates basically sent the message to the keeper of the prison to let Paul and his companions go. And so there must have been something going on in the background that we just don't have. Maybe evidence was brought that Paul was innocent. We don't know. But in the midst of this, I call it honor culture. The word honor, timei in the Greek, is a big deal. If you read the story about the struggle or the strife between Achilles and Agamemnon, it's all about Timae. It's all about honor. Well, Paul is using the honor culture to draw out a superior position above the people that beat him. You see, when he was beaten, he doesn't say anything. Uh, But then afterwards, notice what happens. He tells them that he's a Roman citizen. Now, the law in Rome was that you could not beat a Roman citizen without a trial, and there was no trial. And so Paul calls them out, and he says in verse 37, they beat us openly, uncondemned, being Romans, and have cast us into prison. And now they thrust us out privately, nay, verily, let them come themselves And fetch us out. That's a little bit of chess that uh, Paul is playing here with the magistrates. And I think there's another important uh, point here that Luke is trying to make. Luke is sending a message to the Roman world that Christianity is not in violation of Roman law, that Christianity is not out to subvert Roman power, but it is to teach those that believe in Jesus a higher way. Luke is also really working to present the messengers of Christ as true witnesses. This is so important. And so I think some of these distinctions are worth discussing because I think Luke is trying to make this point. As we proceed into Acts chapter 17, I just want to say that I think this is the highlight of this week's Come, Follow Me. Paul and his partners are going to proceed south along the peninsula down towards Athens, here now we read the places where they go in verse one they eventually come into thessalonica and they reason with them out of the scriptures but then when they get to verse five we read that there were certain jews moved with envy that assault them but in the midst of this they find this guy named jason jason is a guy who's going to open up his house and make it a place of refuge for Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And I would add Luke, if you take Acts chapter 16, verse 10 seriously. I think uh, Jason is one of these people that provides a way for the apostles to get rest. If there weren't, weren't Jasons in church history, it would be really difficult for people like Paul to do their work. And Jason is a venerated saint in Catholic and Eastern Orthodox tradition. Now, he's going to be called a countryman of Paul, hoi Sunages mu, that's Romans uh, 16.1. Some call him Jason of Tarsus, since Paul was from Tarsus. It just depends on how you read it. Sometimes Jason is translated as a fellow Jew. I don't know if he was from Tarsus, but what Jason is going to do is he's going to provide a way for Paul and the apostles to have a place of safety here. And then we read that they leave And they go to Berea and they go to find people that are, quote, more noble than those in Thessalonica. Now, the Greek word just means like of high birth. But I think what the author is doing here, I think what Luke is doing in verse 11, isn't necessarily saying that they're of greater birth, but that they're of stock that will listen to the message. Look what it says in verse 11. It says, they received the word with all readiness of mind. And let's be honest. If you've served a mission, you've taught people that are just more receptive. They're just, for some reason, their spirit is ready to receive it, and so that's what's happening here. So after they teach these people in Berea, they go down, they're going south, they're going into Athens, and we read that the whole city is given over to idolatry. Now, you all know Greek
0: mythology and ancient Greek forms of worship— And trying to please all of the gods and wanting to make sure that all of the gods were happy. that The idea that quite often the Greeks kind of portray is, if we don't please this particular god, then they're going to be angry and, and we're going to suffer their wrath. And so they found themselves kind of in the business of pleasing all the gods. How do we please this God? And so at Mars Hill in Athens, there was the statues, the temples, the monuments, the way they were honoring all
1: the different gods. One person relates that there was an ancient joke that it was easier to find a god than a man in Athens. Now, I think that's an exaggeration, but there were many, many gods there in this time. And so Paul's going to come in, and I think he's going to really throw them for a loop because he's going to reject paganism, but then he's going to teach the resurrection. So I think he's confusing to them, because they're like, at least as I see it, the Stoics and the Epicureans are going to reject the mythology of the gods, so they, they're they with Paul. They're like, yeah, Paul, we're with you. We reject paganism. But then Paul flips it. He flips the script when he says, oh, but there's a resurrection. And they're like, whoa. We don't know. What, what are you talking yeah, about? what are you talking about? But as he comes in, he gets to Mars Hill,
0: and he notices all these monuments to all these different gods, and he finds one that says, to the unknown god. The Greeks didn't want to forget one. What if there was a god out there, and they, they hadn't built a monument to it, and that god's going to be angry? And To kind of cover all of their bases, they were honoring the unknown god. And so Paul stands up in verse 22, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. Now, I'd be careful with that because I don't take that as an accusation. I don't think he's mocking them. I think he's noting that, hey, you're very aware of the gods around you. So let me help you be aware of the great God that you've missed. I don't think he's dissing them. I don't think he's trying to tear them down as much as he's trying to connect with them so that he can teach them.
1: We do geek out in the show notes on that word for being too superstitious. We give four possible ways to read that statement. Since I wasn't there and I didn't hear the tone. gotta
0: hear tone. We gotta see facial expression. Have you ever gotten a text,
1: Bryce, from somebody, and then you thought, that's an angry text, and then you talk to them, and you're like, oh, they weren't angry. So I, I don't know how Paul meant it, but like I said, we geek out on the show notes. On page 11, you can read all about the different ways to read that statement. Yeah, now this moment right here, is a symbol,
0: I believe, of the Latter-day Saints, lovingly, tenderly. That's why, as I read too Superstitious, I don't think he was being accusatory because it was his position to teach them lovingly and kindly in the spirit of the gospel. But this moment right here is what the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is all about. So allow me to, with boldness and yet with loving, tender kindness, say what Jesus said to the woman at the well. Ye worship, ye know not what. And now Paul, like all of us, is looking at a world that is worshiping this God or they're worshiping that way or they're worshiping this idea. And so we lovingly stand there on that altar and say, as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. And then this beautiful phrase, Whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. The position of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the position of the restoration is that God has restored who he is. We know who he is. We know what his purposes are. We know where he came from. We know what his desires are. We know his plan. Therefore, we say to the world, whom ye ignorantly worship, our job is to teach the world who they are not quite understanding. We are to teach who he is. That is the main mission of the church, is to declare him. That's what I love in this moment where Paul just stands up and says, you're missing the one person we should be most worshiping. Let me teach you about our heavenly father. Now, where he goes next is one of my absolute favorite truths. And I don't know that we go here very often. So let me set this up. I know I've said this in previous podcasts. Allow me a little bit of a repetition because this is the moment where I get all of that. If you have ever played hide and go seek with a child, you know that the point of the game is to be found. That's the whole point of the game. It's not fun if you're not found. So, where do children hide? children hide where they can be found. Now, if you play hide and go seek with adults, the point of the game is to not be found. I want to remain hidden. It's a victory if you can't find me. And so there's quite a bit of a debate out there. Does Heavenly Father play hide and go seek like a child or an adult? I have heard commentary from certain scientists who claim Boy, if there is a God, I'm going to wonder, why did you make yourself so hard to find? Some of them see God as playing hide-and-go-seek like an adult. He hid himself so well that it was hard for them to find him. But it is my testimony and my observation that our Heavenly Father plays hide-and-go-seek like a child. He hides in the most obvious places if you're looking for him. He's the one that pops out and says, here I am. He's the one that giggles behind the chair because you're getting close and then pops out because he wants to be found. He wants to be found. And so let me proclaim in verse 27 what Paul says in Athens, that they should seek the Lord if happily they might feel after him and find him. Now, where does Heavenly Father hide, though he be not far from every one of us? For in him we live and move and have our blessing, as certain of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. It is my testimony that if you go looking for what kind of being Heavenly Father is, and you simply look at his children, the best in his children, you will see clearly who he is and what he does and why he does it and how he feels. He manifests himself in his children. It is in the kindness that his children show to each other. The best of human qualities is manifestation of the kind of being our Heavenly Father is. Now, who taught you about love and forgiveness and kindness. I'm guessing you opened up the scriptures and saw those blessings in print, but you learned about them from someone who showed you love and kindness and forgiveness and patience and all of the divine qualities that we see. Heavenly Father is the best part in all of us. So many of us have people in our life that love us, and yet it's hard for them to make the connection that the God of heaven loves us and you're missing the point, if someone loves you here, isn't that evidence that Heavenly Father loves you? If there are people in your life willing to forgive mistakes, doesn't that manifest that Heavenly Father? He is the forgiveness in us. He is the kindness and the love and the patience that so many people in our lives illustrate. Now, I know that's a we need to be careful with that because there is also a natural man in us. We know that. That natural man is an enemy to God. So there is a part of me that is going to manifest the opposite. We can't conclude, well, everyone hates me, therefore God hates me. But the idea here is find those qualities in his children that show you what kind of being he is. He is the best in all of us. I am married to an incredible woman who loves more deeply than any human being I know. And she manifests my Heavenly Father to me every single day. When I see human love like I see in my wife, it is a testimony of the divine love that I know comes from Heavenly Father.
1: Absolutely. I really like his sermon, Bryce. I really like his... Expressions where he says that God has not worshipped with men's hands. I really love verse 26, where he says, God has made of one blood all nations of men to dwell on the face of the earth. Verse 27, that they should seek the Lord if haply they might feel after him and find him, referencing your your comments about hiding. For in him we live and we move and we have our being as certain also your own poets, he's quoting Epimenides here, have said, we are also his offspring. That's literally what it says in the Greek, that we are the offspring of God. And as Latter-day Saints, that's part of our doctrine that is very simple. It's very plain that we are children of God. But by and large in Christianity today, because of the apostasy, that idea is seen more as a metaphor i also love verse 30 mike where paul
0: says the times of this ignorance god winked at it's like what the lord said to joseph smith when he went to salem looking for the gold in the basement you know he says i'm not displeased with you coming on this journey notwithstanding thy folly he's just revealing that nature of heavenly father to say guys you've really gone too far you've really gone too far. But Heavenly Father can wink at this. He understands. He knows the human heart. And so there are things like those, okay, Bryce, this wasn't your greatest idea, but bless your heart for trying, that this is a very understanding God. Now look at how that contrasts with what many of the Greeks believed about angering a God that if you didn't do it right, they were angry and they were going to punish you. But no, 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 our Heavenly Father, when we make mistakes, He understands, He winks, He invites us to better behavior, but He isn't so condemning like you think He is. So Paul's really trying to do exactly what he
1: said and reveal the nature of God to these people. One scholar explains, speaking of God being our Father— He says, it is the idea of God as Father, which is the most characteristic of New Testament teaching in general, and especially of the teachings of Jesus. So I'm just going to say it this way. The number one way Jesus refers to God is our Father. He is conceptualized as our Father. But then the scholar continues when he writes, but this tended to be a nationalistic idea rather than an individual relationship it becomes metaphorical, and God becomes something that's other, and we kind of lose that relationship with Him over the years in the apostasy. But early on in Christianity, here we have Paul, and he's quoting the poets that the people in Athens know and understand. He's actually using the object lessons right there in Athens. He's using physical things to emphasize this idea, hey, you guys have all these different gods. You have literally this altar that's kind of like covering your bases. It's, it's this unknown god. Hey, if there's anything we've missed, by the way, as a side note, Bryce, it reminds me when we give a blessing, we're like, if there's anything we've missed, and we it's like, just like
0: just there's something I'm not. In, uh, you were <laughs> wanting me to say that I didn't say. Yeah, yet. I it. I'm
1: now saying. Yeah, I want to make sure I cover that. But Paul essentially here comes to this altar and he says, "Listen, uh, I get what you guys are doing." But the bottom line is there really is a God and we're related to him. So I just, I think this is such a good sermon. And, and just like you mentioned, Bryce in verse 30, where he says, you know, God has winked at these things. Another translation we give it to you in the show notes is Paul essentially says, hey, for times in, in the past, God's overlooked this stuff. But then he saves the hard message to the end of his speech. And it's really where he says, but God has sent me to talk to you guys. And guess what? Y'all need to repent. Like, we've, we've got to do better. We've got to step up our game. So that's kind of the end of his Mars Hill sermon, and you can visit it today. Like, Athens still exists, and there, there's ruins there, and you can go to Mars Hill. It's wonderful that these are real places. Paul was a real person. Even the most adamant atheist historian is saying, no, there really was a Jesus. There really was a Paul. They were real people rooted in time and space. And so with that, we're now going to go to Acts chapter 18. So notice some of the cities that
0: we've passed through. We did Philippi in chapter 16. Chapter 17 is Thessalonica. Chapter 18, we're going to get into Corinth. We're going to get into Ephesus. So you're starting to see how all of this is coming together in the New Testament. Paul is going to the places to whom he will write letters later. So the Thessalonians, the book of Thessalonians, the book of Corinthians, the Philippians, Paul is now going to those places and making the connections and learning the people, and then they're going to write to him and ask questions, and Paul's going to answer those questions. So start to notice the places where he's going and the connection to the books that he writes. So now in chapter 18, we go into Corinth. We're going to go into Ephesians. And this is how the New Testament is now going to be laid out throughout the rest of this Come, Follow Me year, is the letters he writes back to these
1: places where he visited. By the way, uh, Corinth was kind of a big deal because it was on this little skinny little isthmus, and so there were ports on both sides. And in Paul's day, they would actually save hundreds of miles, and they'd put their ships on these rollers, on these logs, and they'd roll them along the logs to the other side of the isthmus, and then they would sail away, and you'd pay a little fee there to do it. And you would save so many days off your journey by putting your boat on these rollers. Now today, they've actually dug out a canal, And you can go visit Corinth today, and you can see the canal that they have dug, so they don't have to put the ships on rollers anymore. But it's situated in this perfect place. And so because of that, it was a port city. There were a lot of sailors. And so sometimes in this time period, if somebody said that someone was Corinthian in nature, a lot of times that was a uh, derogatory remark. But Corinth was in a really good position to become wealthy because there was so much trade and shipment coming in and out of Corinth. And so in this context, Paul is coming into this place, and there's all these different people here, and there are clearly some Jews, because typically his approach is, I'm going to go into the location, I'm going to find where the Jews are, because they have the scriptures, and then I'm going to reason with them, and we're going to talk about Jesus. So in the midst of this... He goes into the synagogue there in verse 8 of chapter 18. And it says Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. So he's having some success. Then spake the Lord to Paul in night by vision. And he said, be not afraid, but speak and hold not thy peace, for I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city. And he continued there for a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So after he spends about 18 months in Corinth, we read that Paul initiates a vow. Skip down to verse 18. Paul, after this, he tarried a good while and then took leave of his brethren and sailed thence into Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila, having shorn his head in Centuria, for he had a vow. One scholar writes, The act of shaving one's head served as a symbolic culmination of a vow in Paul's lifetime. Such vows could either be perpetual, as in the case of individuals who are consecrated as Nazarites, or they could be temporal, as the case was with Paul. Although the specifics of Paul's vow is unknown, it is plausible that it was a personal undertaking. During the duration of his vow, he observed the Nazarite practice of refraining from cutting his hair. As such, the shearing of his hair signified the release from his obligation to fulfill the vow. So that's one possible interpretation. Whatever the vow is, we don't know, but we know that he makes it, and he leaves Corinth. So he's now sailing east through the Aegean, and then he comes to the western coast of Turkey, to this place known as Ephesus. So then in 22, he lands at Caesarea. Remember, Caesarea Maritima is that port city that herod the great set up but then it says he went down to antioch now antioch is actually north up in syria now that's
0: where we consider the end of his second mission verse 23 is the beginning of his third mission where he's going to depart again and go back to galatia see there's the galatians and so he's going to go back and start his third mission in verse 23
1: paul's third missionary journey begins with his departure from antioch and he's accompanied by silas and timothy He revisits the churches he established during his second journey. He goes uh, to Galatia and Phrygia, and he arrives in Ephesus. He then goes to Macedonia and Achaia, and he strengthens the churches there before he returns to Miletus to give a farewell address to the elders in the Ephesian church. One thing you're going to see is notice that Paul is shifting away from the
0: Jews. He's now spending a lot more time in well-known Gentile cities, He's taking that mission to the Gentiles. Now, I know this is next week's podcast, but I just want to kind of have this on your brain as you watch these last few cities, this last mission, where Paul is really trying to preach to Gentiles, and he's being rejected by the Jews. The very last chapter of Acts, chapter 28. Now, remember, everything after Acts are the epistles, The epistles of Paul, the epistles of Peter, James, John, the Revelation, the history of the New Testament ends in Acts chapter 28. And the last thing he's going to say is, be it known therefore unto you that the salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles, that they will hear it. Now, clearly he was referring to his day that the Gentiles are hearing the message, and we're now going to focus our attention on the Gentiles, but there is a prophecy of our day, the restoration. So just watch that as Paul now tries to press the gospel further away from Jerusalem. He's preaching to the Gentiles. He's having success, and then he's going to turn his head and go back to Jerusalem
1: and be rejected. That's really a a big focus here. There's a lot of uh, strife in the city of Ephesus in the 19th chapter of Acts when Paul's preaching there. He's going to spend about two years there. The reference on that is going to be verse 10 of Acts chapter 19, that he's spending about two years there. Now, the text is going to call uh, the strife... Uh, around this goddess Diana. That's verse 28. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And it talks about the whole city being filled with confusion. That goddess is in the King James called Diana, but that goddess is um, also called Artemis. The temple of Artemis in Ephesus was considered the most beautiful of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was the largest and the most well-known of the buildings in the Roman Empire. And so there was a lot of commerce that was brought into the city because of this temple. And there's a lot of ruins in Ephesus that you can actually go visit today. And you can see how how the the city was kind of laid out anciently. And in the midst of all this, there's a group of people that stand to lose a lot of money, as Paul spends a couple years there, because as he's teaching people about Christ, uh, the the religion of Artemis could be taking a hit. And so there's this guy named Demetrius who basically comes out and says, hey, listen, um, we've got to put this guy down. And then there's another guy by the name of Alexander, that's in verse 33. And Alexander reasons with the people of Ephesus from about verse 33 to verse 41. And so there's this tension here with Paul teaching the gospel here. And really, at the end of the day, there is, at times, the gospel of Jesus Christ causes problems or makes waves, because yes, there are going to be people that are going to be out of work if they're converted to Christ. And Paul is in this tense moment here as there is this uproar that's brought about. Yeah, just as
0: a parallel, in the Book of Mormon, do you know what started the Great War? The war chapters in Alma... Do you know what was really the fuel that fed that fire? I'm going to read from the Book of Mormon, Alma chapter 35, verse 3. It came to pass that after the more popular part of the Zoramites had consulted together concerning the words which had been preached unto them, they were angry because of the word, for it did destroy their craft. Therefore, they would not hearken unto the words. And if you read the rest of chapter 35... It's that Zoramite group that was being threatened, their their jobs, their livelihood, their craft was being threatened by the preaching of Alma. They're the ones that join up with the Lamanites and initiate kind of the commencement of the great war, verse 13, and thus commenced a war between the Lamanites and the Nephites. So we see that same idea going on, that the preaching of the gospel is a threat to their finances, and so they're going to fight it.
1: Yeah. It's tough. So because of this uproar, he does leave. We read in chapter 20, verse 1, that he departs and he goes into Macedonia. He comes into Greece and spends about three months there. He leaves Greece, and then he goes into Berea, and then he goes into uh, Troas. And then in verses 6 through 11 in the 20th chapter, Paul's preaching a sermon, and Eutychus, we read that he's a young man, falls asleep, and he falls down, and he dies. And we read in verse 10 that Paul went down and fell upon him and embraced him. Now we read as something similar in the Old Testament, where Old Testament prophets would embrace the dead and breathe life into them. And so we read that verse 11 here in Acts chapter 20, when he therefore was come up again and had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even till the break of day he departed. So Paul raises him from the dead, but he spent some time with him and breaks bread with him and has communion with him. And I I can only imagine, Bryce, that that story would have been told uh, by him, to his family, and to all the people in the city. So he then journeys to Jerusalem, and this is where he's arrested and he's brought before the Sanhedrin. That's in Acts chapter 21. He's then transferred to Caesarea, or Caesarea Maritima, and he's tried before Felix and Festus. Eventually, he appeals to Caesar as a citizen of Rome. Paul then survives a shipwreck on the way to Rome, and he arrives there where he was allowed to live in Rome under house arrest. Despite his imprisonment, Paul continued to preach the gospel, and he wrote letters to all kinds of churches, including the letters to the Ephesians, the Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. According to some sources, like Clement, Dionysus, and the church historian Eusebius, and even Tertullian, Paul is going to be executed by beheading a death that was befitting a Roman citizen. According to ancient sources, they tell us that Nero, the emperor, knew Paul personally. So it's likely that Nero had Paul beheaded through the order of the prefects of Rome. We don't read in the New Testament that he's killed. Like, this is not happening in the New Testament. So what we're doing is we're pulling from other sources, people that knew of these stories. And a lot of these writers are in agreement that Paul will be beheaded under the leadership of Nero, that emperor, around 65 or 66 AD. So now we turn to Paul going
0: to Jerusalem, and there's just such a beautiful moment in Paul surrendering, Paul giving. This is just like Jesus going to Jerusalem, knowing that he was going to be crucified. Paul is now going to go to Jerusalem. Now, in his case, he doesn't know what's going to happen to him. So he says in 20 verse 22, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there. And then I love verse 24, but none of these things move me meaning out of my place, I'm not gonna depart from my mission to go to Jerusalem. Neither count I my life dear unto myself so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Now, just like Jesus, when Peter stepped forward and says, don't do it, Lord, don't go to Jerusalem. If they're gonna kill you, don't go. And Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. In chapter 21, the people that loved him and worried about him suggested that he not go to Jerusalem. Verse 12, they besought him not to go up to Jerusalem, and I just love Paul's statement. It is so typical of the disciple of Christ. I know that Jesus is going to be with me, and I know that Jesus is going to bless me, I have a testimony of that water that will quench my thirst, that will be in me a well of living water. I know that Jesus is going to journey with me, but I also know that I'm going through Gethsemane. He is going to lead me through Gethsemane. And so this is that disciple when the liberty jails of our lives or the Gethsemanes of our lives are coming up. Paul says, after they suggest he not do it, what mean ye to weep? And to break mine heart, for I am ready, not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And when they would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, the will of the Lord be done. Such a beautiful moment, such a beautiful attitude of, I'm not alone, Jesus is with me, but I am going to do something hard. He is leading me to something hard, and I am not going to avoid it. I am not going to run away from it. I am going to bear my cross. I am going to Jerusalem, and I'm willing not only to be bound, but I'm willing to die for the name of the Lord. That's that attitude of the disciple. Lord, be with me, and then let's go. This is Joseph on his horse going to Carthage. This is Mary saying, behold, the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy will. This is the moment of the disciple when the Lord says, I need you to do something hard. And we say, Lord, I am ready not only to do the hard thing, but to go all the way where you want me to go. May we be that kind of disciple. May we be the Paul of the modern day, willing to go Not to Bithynia, where our heart would like to go, but willing to go to Philippi,
1: and then trusting that the Lord knew what he was doing all along. And with that, we thank you for your time. We will see you next week when we cover the end of the book of Acts. We will be covering Acts chapter 22 through 28. Make it a great week. Talking Scripture is
0: not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints the opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.